This is a Federal News Network podcast. The White House launched both a cyber sprint and a marathon with its much-anticipated executive order. It lays out dozens of deadlines for agencies to shore up their networks and data. These range from creating a plan in 60 days to move to a zero-trust architecture to encrypting data at rest and data in transit. They've got six months for that one. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me to break down this ninth cyber executive order in the last 11 years. Jason, I measured it at 8,080 words. There's a lot in this executive order. What stands out to you the most? I think there's two things that really the White House is trying to do. Number one, we haven't necessarily seen an executive order before that really has a really hard focus on federal networks. Yes, there's been plenty of executive orders before. Yes, some have had some focus on on federal networks. But this one specifically is really going to the heart of the problem. And I think with Jim Lewis, the senior vice president and director of strategic technologies program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies says, it, it, he talks about it, poor cyber hygiene and buggy code are the two things that, that he thinks that this uh, EO really is trying to go after. And, and poor cyber hygiene, Tom, that's something you and I have been reporting on for 20 years now. Well, we got to do it better. we got to fix this. You know, five things to do. And I think a lot of what this EO is trying to get at is are those issues. Take, take for instance, Tom, this idea of, of cloud security. There's a whole section here where agencies have to do things around cloud security. And what stands out to me is it's not just do it better, but they're, they're really prescriptive in some ways, yet they're very general in other ways, telling agencies, you must come up with a strategy. The strategy must look at these types of things. Or it tells you know GSA and FedRAMP and OMB and CISA to take sure. on a, a reference architecture. And the reference architecture has got to really focus in these areas. And I think that's really helpful for agencies. Too often, either the EOs are too broad and nothing, no one knows what to do with it, or you get policies or directives that are so specific that an agency says, well, that doesn't necessarily apply to my network or doesn't really fit to my network structure well, and, and I'm not sure what to do with it. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting balance of both prescriptive and general or broad-based efforts to really improve, again, again, the two things that Jim Lewis pointed out, cyber hygiene, buggy code. And there's a lot of concentration on contractors, contracting language they want inserted into the FAR, Federal Acquisition Regulation, and also contractor general conduct when it comes to cyber and the whole, as you mentioned, software supply chain. So what does the White House want from the industry? That's the other thing that I think is a huge difference than what we've seen in previous executive orders. Again, we've seen executive orders have tried to, for instance, improve information sharing. This one has specific goals. So it's going to create a cyber incident review board, which is going to be made up of public and private sector experts that when a major incident happens, like take the Colonial Pipeline or solar winds, they're going to bring private and public sector experts together to figure out what happened, how it happened, make recommendations so it doesn't happen again, and then share those lessons learned. On the other hand, it's also putting a, a pretty big hammer down on industry to say, if you're going to do business with the government, here's how you will do business going forward. If you have a cyber breach, you will tell us, right? So the whole complaint was Colonial Pipelines, solar winds. The government found out maybe behind a little bit, and they should have been in front of the of the of the information as it got out. They're also saying we're going to hold you to a baseline standard for software development, and the National Institutes of Standards and Technology is going to de- 
create that baseline. Now, that's prescriptive, but on the other hand, the broad-based is they say, well, in a year, NIST will open the door and say, let's talk about how this baseline, the cybersecurity baseline for software is going to evolve and iterate and continue to develop. And I think that's why it's a good balance. But Tom, you said it right. I think industry is really going to feel the brunt of this cybersecurity executive order in many ways, as much as agencies are. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Now, there have been nine other cyber executive orders since 2010, and we had the uh, cybersecurity for the 44th presidency for early on in the Biden administration. This one seems to either sum it all up and put it back into one order. What do you see different this time around? You're right. There's been, I went back and counted, and there's been everything around the cyber executive workforce to trying to deal with critical infrastructure to, you know, if you remember, Tom, at the very end of the Bush administration in 2008, they released the CNCI, the Cyber National uh, Security Plan, which is really focused on trying to really move agencies in a big direction like this did. This That, that for instance, launched the Trusted Internet Connections Initiative, which we're still talking about today. This EO, you know, unfortunately, is, is, is very similar to those other ones. It's trying to do so much, and I think that's a, a really big concern. They're trying to, you know, I'll borrow from our old friend Mark Foreman, eat the elephant in one bite. They're trying to boil the ocean. And, and I think that's very challenging. And actually, Brandon Wales, the acting director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, at DHS, spoke on Thursday morning. And that was one of the questions I asked him is, why not? you know, kind of cordon off and say, we're going to do a sprint for a couple of things and then sprint for a couple of things. And his response, very interesting time was around so many things need to get done that we didn't think we could make that big of a difference. And if we continue to wait, we are going to, the, the problem's only going to get worse. I think the mistake that agencies and, and White Houses make, like the Biden administration, you saw it with the Trump administration, you saw it with the Obama administration, it really doesn't matter partisan-wise, is there just try to do too much and try to give agencies too many. I mean, Tom, sure. as you said, 8,000 words. Uh, somebody told me they counted, they stopped counting after 70 different deadlines that are yeah. out there. <laughs> 30 days, 60 days, sure what, 120 days. Right. How can you get stuff done? How can you pay attention? Someone's got a massive spreadsheet. And, and I think that that's that's probably the big challenge I see. At the same time, the big difference I see with other ones is this is really trying to give agencies specific orders that are not just in 60 days you'll come up with a plan it's you'll come up with a plan and then you'll come up with you then you'll be held accountable to uh, meeting that plan one of the questions that came up this uh, thursday morning during a press conference was what's this carrots and sticks what's the stick and you know brandon wells did, from CISA did not have a great answer to say we will do this as the stick or omb will do that as the stick he brought the usual well agencies have been good so far with you know binding operational directives and emergency directives or well omb could use the budget and tom you and i know we've been doing this long enough to know that that's a nice threat it just doesn't it rarely comes through sure unless unless tom i'll go back to our friend mark foreman you break out the clinger cone letter and throw that down on the table and say we're going to withhold your funding, and here's how we're going to do it. And that, that right. <laughs> has not been done for quite a while. It sure hasn't. And the other thing, too, is zero trust that it calls for, cloud beefed-up security, a modernizing FedRAMP, two-factor authentication, many, many things that it emphasizes, data sharing, are already happening at some agencies to a lesser degree or a greater degree. So in some ways, it's kind of taking it all and making sure everything is still in the pot after it, this has been boiling for so long. That, that's a great point, because one thing that Brandon Wales did say Thursday morning was 
something like multi-factor authentication. CISA believes 95% of the government already uses multi-factor authentication. So it's really just getting that last mile, and it's really ensuring that this EO really pushes agencies to that last mile, get to 99.999% or, or, or 100%. The same thing with data encryption. So much of data is already encrypted. How do you get that last mile of encryption? And that way, you know, you think about, well, six months doesn't seem like a long time to encrypt data at rest and data in transit. But if agencies are already doing it for the most part, what's that last, again, piece that they have to put together to, to, to really ensure that data is encrypted all the time? All right. Lots to unpack, but you can check more at federalnewsnetwork.com. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. Check out a story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. 
And there was another candidate who ran as Vice President White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was a beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when 
uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.